<laughs> Welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Bill Lustig is an American filmmaker, director, and producer. Perhaps best known as the director of the New York exploitation slasher classic, Maniac, starring Joe Spinelli, with effects by Tom Savini, who actually stars in the film and has a great moment where he gets his head blown off. The scene may actually rival Scanners for one of the best exploding head sequences in cinematic history. Just an explosion of gore. That moment in itself is worth the price of admission for Maniac alone. Bill is also the founder of Blue Underground, which is one of my favorite horror remastering labels. Blue Underground just recently put out two new incredible releases, including Maniac and Lucio Fulci's Zombie, both of which are in 4K. Fulci Zombie is definitely in my top three favorite zombie movies of all time, and this release does not disappoint. In fact, it mesmerizes. The movie looks amazing in 4K, and it also comes with a CD of the soundtrack, which is extra cool. Maniac in 4K is also fantastic because one of the incredible things that Blue Underground and similar companies like Arrow Video does so well is they remaster these movies while retaining the cinema film look, which is really integral to the movie itself. The grit and the grain is still very much there in Maniac, and it all looks even better in 4K. So go check those two out at www.blue-underground.com. So Maniac was Bill's first movie, and the story behind the making of it was actually full of these timeless lessons in independent filmmaking. There's a particularly great story about how he and his team premiered Maniac at the Cannes Film Festival, if you can picture Maniac playing in Cannes. Here's a fun fact. Bill is actually the nephew of Jake LaMotta, the boxer who Robert De Niro plays in Raging Bull. Also, Bill was originally supposed to direct True Romance and was Quentin Tarantino's first choice as the director. Bill even wrote the ending to it before Tony Scott got the project. Another fun fact is that before horror, Bill started his career in hardcore pornography and was heavily immersed in the overall grindhouse culture of New York's famous 42nd Street. We talk about all of this and so much more on today's episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Now, for your listening pleasure, Mr. Bill Lustig. How's everything going? Everything is good. Everything's good. Yeah. Good, good. So, first of all, congrats on the new the the new Blue Underground releasing of Zombie. It really looks amazing. This beautiful 3-disc 4K remastering. Thank you again for sending it to me, by the way. It's uh it's pretty cool. This thing is amazing and the fact that it has a soundtrack is uh is extra cool cuz I really I really with love the music. With a bonus track. Oh, with a bonus track. And, yeah, never before released bonus track. Is it from Fabio Fritzi? Well, I think it is. No, it's actually a song. It was the song that was played uh when Tisha Farrow is a uh, creeping around the New York dock. Mhm. At towards the beginning of the movie. Right. It's kind of a disco song. Oh, nice. Okay, really cool. So I, I, this is one of my favorite horror movies. From your perspective, what is it about Zombie that makes it endure to this day? Well, um, firstly, it's a pretty damn good script. It's a yeah. good script. Um, and the direction of Lucio Fulci really takes a good script and, script and makes it great. Um, uh, and... Uh, the set pieces in that movie are just, you know, um, amazing, uh, uh, memorable set pieces. You know, the girl with the underwater zombie, the splinter in the eye, all these things um, had had never been seen before and since. Right. And done as well as, as done in the film. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's just, there's just so many amazing images in it. And I think it was Guillermo del Toro who said when he first saw it, he was so young that he he thought that he had dreamt the entire movie because it was that uh-huh. it was that good. Well, I got to tell you, I saw Zombie. It's very opening day on Broadway. Whoa. And I, it was unforgettable. Yeah, that must have been amazing. Well, that was actually my next question. Where were you when you first saw Zombie and what was the overall experience like? It was the very, very first day. I remember going to an afternoon show in uh, uh, a big Broadway theater. And uh, it was just amazing. It was 
a film that I've seen, God, countless times since. Um, and uh, I, I love the movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty... Uh... It's, it's pretty amazing the fact that it endures the way it does and seeing it in 4k one of the things i love about the blue underground movies is that you're able to take these old grittier grainy movies and and boost them up to 4k and remaster them and they look they look gorgeous but you still are able to retain that really gritty grind grindhousey kind of film cinema film look at the same time is that that's got to be intentional right it is. Well, it's, I mean, firstly, I think Zombie looks beautiful. Yeah. It has film grain in it, but I think film grain, there's a beauty in film grain. Uh, we, we transferred Zombie from the actual camera negative. It was the negative that ran through the camera and was developed. That's the, that's as first generation as you're going to get. Yeah. That's really, really cool. So do you, um, it's kind of a stupid question, but do you have any opinion on Zombie 3 or Zombie 4? I think they kind of stink. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> All those Bruno Mattei zombie films, and uh, they were just god-awful. Yeah, yeah, they were kind of hard to get through. So is there, do you have a favorite special feature on the new Zombie Blu-ray? Mm, let me see. Um trying to think i mean I, I i we have a lot of features on it um i'm trying to think of one that was particularly outstanding um uh geez i i kind of like the commentary tracks i think they're really interesting yeah um, it was with one of the historic like a fulci historian i forgot his name yeah he, he literally wrote the book Stephen on fulci Trower. right I, ju- I bought his book minutes before we actually got on the phone as a matter of fact it's big beautiful hardcover from amazon yeah, he gives a lot of insight into the movie. Okay, really cool. So as far as I would really I'd love your opinion on the current state of horror because the past few years have been pretty big for horror. 2017 was and 2018 as far as I'm concerned is a pretty big year for horror as well. Have you what have you seen lately in the horror genre that's been particularly exciting for you? Well, I saw a Brazilian movie uh recently called Night Shifter which I thought was a a really great movie. I saw a movie that's coming out uh, in February uh, called uh, Knife, uh, Heart Plus Knife. It's a French movie that really is a a really good neo-jalo film. Hmm. You know, I've never been a fan of the ones that I consider kind of a jalo stylistic film but it doesn't have any of the interesting storyline to it right this one is really good it's got a good script good acting and it's uh excellent movie so you're not a big fan of those kind of dream logic jellos that go all over the place and don't really have a story exactly you know there's these guys who made uh what was that film amir and uh, a couple of and those films just don't really grab me you know They, they they don't have they just don't work for me. Yeah. Um, and let me see some other horror. God. Um, uh, trying to think now. I mean, I'm usually not a. I'm not a big fan of mainstream horror. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, it. You know, things like that. I. I don't know. I'm, I'm less interested in those films. I've seen them, but I don't. They don't really resonate for me. It's mostly the the lower budgeted, more uh, B movie uh, horror that. I, I enjoy seeing. Yeah, and you've been a big fan of foreign horror films for uh, for a really long time, obviously. How were you able to first get introduced to these foreign horror films? Um, th- well, most of them were released in America um, uh, through tax shelter groups in the 70s. Because they really didn't have a, um, a, um, a, US, a strong U.S. market. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I enjoyed uh, the foreign horror films is they look like movies. They right. really were art house movies. They were art house movies slash horror films. And so they really had a great look photographically. There was attention to music and to audio. And, um, you know, they were real movies. Whereas I always felt the ones made in America especially the ones made out of California for like AIP and New World and 
and Crown International, all those movies, all felt like like TV movies once, you know, kind of, they were like, they felt inspired by TV movies. Right. They were too polished. They were, well, they had a TV movie look to them. They were overlit because they wanted them to work in drive-ins. Right. They, um, you know, they just had a TV feel that I hated. Right. And still do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's something to those films like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And this is, this is a really good segue into Maniac. But Maniac as well, where when you're working with low budgets, you have this very gritty 16 millimeter look that has a it has a feel to it that's kinetic and that is completely and totally no holds barred and it it just has a ruthlessness to the look that I think is is very it's really just intangibly frightening for a lot of people on a very well, natural look, level. I, I've always felt that the move that when any time people would ask me where's the next great horror film coming from, I, I tell them it's going to be coming from Detroit, it's going to be coming from Austin, it's going to be coming from Pittsburgh, New York. It's not going to come out of Hollywood. Right. And um, and the reason for that is I feel that filmmakers like myself and the and Sam Raimi and Toby Hooper and and, the, you know, and George Romero, we weren't working with a rule with a rule book. I mean, we were out there making movies. And what made them, I think, interesting is we were we were doing things that Hollywood would would consider foreboding. Right. And um, and that's what gave, you know, these films a, a, a resonance to them. Yeah. Is it true that the inception for Maniac was somebody suggesting that you make Jaws on land? Kind of. It was, <laughs> it was uh, yeah, I kind of joke about it, but it's really true. Um, it was kind of the first thought was that. And then um, it went further into making a character that was a compilation of 70 serial killers. Hmm. A compilation of actual 70 serial killers. Yes. Oh, that's interesting. So was it, it was obviously a time period where there were a number of serial killers that were well, stalking the, 70, the streets. The seventies I considered to be the golden age of serial killers. You had Ted Bundy, you had Henry Lee Lucas, you had John Wayne Gacy, uh, David Berkowitz. You had all of these really colorful, Serial killers today, serial killers are mostly, you know, that that, you know, weird guy down the street who kidnaps, rapes and murders. Very boring. Back in the 70s, these guys had panache. You know, they you know, John Wayne Gacy, he was a clown at children's uh, birthday parties during the day. And at night, he'd stalk the streets, picking up young boys, bringing them back to his home where he would have sex with them, kill them, and bury them under his house. Right. I mean, how much more interesting a character can that be? <laughs> and Henry Lee Lucas, his mother used to dress him up as a girl because she wanted a girl. Right. Um, you know, I could go on and on. David Berkowitz, you know, ta getting orders from his neighbor's dog. Oh, right. A, you know, John Wayne, uh, how about Ted Bundy? Ted Bundy was the kind of guy who girls were still wedding themselves when he was on trial for all the murders. Right. They, he was so, you know, they considered him to be so handsome and charismatic and charming and all the rest. Right. So the a fear of serial killers was really in the zeitgeist around the time that you, you wrote and produced Maniac, obviously. It was a fear and fascination. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because I still, it feels like we're still in this culture of, fascination for serial killers. There's a lot on Netflix about serial killers. There's a number of movies like Making of a Murderer, just these docu-series. People just can't seem to get enough of all of this the kind of forensic exploration of serial killers. True. Yeah. So one but thing... But now I, with all of the forensics, it's kind of hard to be a serial killer. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's true. I mean, look at it. You know, that guy who, who was uh, sent out those b bombs, how quickly... Oh yeah, they How nabbed him. They they arrested that they arrested that guy. I mean, it's it's like you can't get away with shit anymore. 
So one thing I thought was interesting when you were talking to Mick Garris about Maniac and getting investors on board, you said that when investors jump on board when the train leaves the station. So in other words, when investors sure. see that the movie is in, in motion, that's when they jump on board instead of it just being some sort of intangible abstract idea on a piece of paper or a script. Exactly. I've always taken the approach that uh, you got to put the you got to put the train on the tracks and get it moving. And that's when investors jump on board. Yeah, it's not the it's not the 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 you know the textbook um, advice that people would give you, but to me, on a practical level, you have to take that risk, especially when you're trying to make your first uh, films. You yeah. have to do that. And is that because investors? I mean, investors obviously get pitched movies all the time, and people say, "I have a script, or I have an idea, or I have a concept," and will you take a meeting and do they? Is it just a matter of them needing to see actual tangible action being done on a movie in order for them to think, all right, this kid's legit. He actually has something going. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think that's that's it. I think you know they're seeing that it's real, that it's moving forward, and they and uh, do they jump on board or or pass? Right. Uh, you know, it's it's it creates a momentum. It's always like that, though. Even if you're doing studio films. It's always like trying to create a sense of urgency mm -hmm. for somebody to make a, a financial decision. Right. So very rare does do things happen, you know, where they're in from inception. Very rare do things happen when what? When they're in from inception. Okay. You know, where you where they're there from the beginning. It's always you gotta create a certain scenario of urgency. Right. So for if you don't do it, somebody else is gonna do it. You know, we've got the script. We just signed this actor. You're always trying to find ways to create a sense of urgency for investors to come on board. Hmm. So for those indie filmmakers out there who are just scraping to get their low-budget movies off the ground and they don't have a ton of money, what are the things they can do to create urgency and to, to get that train on the tracks in the very beginning? Well, I mean, it's it's um, going out there. I mean, firstly, today, you don't have that big of a of a uh, a hurdle to get to make a movie. I mean, you can go out with a video camera and make a movie. Right. Back back when I was making movies, it had to be on film, and film was inherently expensive. The equipment, the film, the processing, all that. You know, there was a certain. Um, you know, there was a certain amount of money you needed. Right. And now it's almost like you can go out with, with zero dollars and, you know, make something happen. Right. Yeah, it's the good news and the bad news. I mean, it's, it's good for filmmakers, but it also it floods the market. with. There's a lot more competition nowadays, it seems. Well, I don't know if competition. I would say a lot more shitty films. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's probably more accurate. You know, because, yeah, because they... They, anybody can go out and really make a movie. Right. Yeah, it doesn't. you can do it with your smartphone. I think Steven Soderbergh filmed, he did an entire feature on a smartphone, I think about a year ago. I forgot what it was called, but. Yeah, a friend of mine, uh, Sean Baker, did a movie with two iPhones. Oh, wow. That was terrific, called Tangerine. Oh, that's right. That was done with, yeah, I forgot that that was done with entirely with iPhones. Yeah, it's yeah, really, was, really cool. And it was brilliant. So one thing that I thought was really fascinating is, um, is there's a great story about when you took Maniac on the festival circuit and you brought it to Cannes. And I think it was one of your producers who had a, a very kind of contrarian sense of how he wanted the film to be played. And uh, instead of renting out the biggest theater, he wanted the smallest theater. Could you tell that? No, no, that wasn't, that wasn't a producer. That was a producer's rep. Oh, okay. It was our sale. It was really or, or known as a sales agent. I see. What what had happened is um, I went to uh, one of the most uh, at the time the 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 most uh, the highest end uh, audio facility in New York, which happened to be about four blocks from my apartment. Mm -hmm. And uh, I asked them. I said, "Look, I said I live four blocks away. They knew me already. I had done some work there." And they, I said, I'll take your downtime, meaning that it's the time that, um, you know, when someone's uh, working on a project, often the, the studio goes empty uh, because they're 
trying to finalize a reel or do something and this and the studio doesn't charge that client for that downtime right they just eat it so i said how about if i take the downtime uh, to mix the movie maniac hmm. and uh and so i i got access to their biggest studio their dolby studio and mixed maniac and dolby stereo now, this was 1980 when very few films were in Dolby Stereo, let alone independent, low-budget independent films. Right. So when we go to premiere it in Cannes, I wanted to play it at a Dolby Stereo theater, which at the time was only the big theaters in Cannes. Um, and, uh, and my sales agent said, no, we got to play it at the smallest theater in Cannes. And it was a, uh, a brilliant marketing move because um, when we premiered uh, Maniac, many of the uh, buyers, the distributors, um, were turned away because they said you couldn't get in, you know, <laughs> because they, there was not enough room. Right. Plus, he loaded it with local kids right. to sit among the distributors getting their reaction to, you know, what was, you know, to the movie. Mm -hmm. So between the two things, it created a buzz for the film at Cannes and a demand for the film because no one ever asked. I couldn't get in. Nobody asked, oh, how many seats were in the theater? <laughs> they just, you know, they only hear that, they, that, that somebody went and couldn't get in, were turned away. Right. It's pretty amazing because to me, that's, that's a lesson in showmanship and PR yeah, it was it, it it went against my wishes, but I couldn't have thanked them more. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty brilliant because when you think about it, if uh, it would seem so sacrilegious to anybody attempting to sell a film to know we're going to pack the theater so the actual sales agents can't get in, it sounds entirely contrarian. But that builds a lot of PR buzz, and they're like, "Wow, this movie's really popular." Well, they got in. I mean, some of the distributors did get in, and the, what was great about it is they were talking about the movie. Um, the next day, um, on uh, at, at you know all the breakfast spots, they were talking about this scene from the movie. You know, I I, I there was a German uh, distributor who picked up the movie without seeing it because he heard somebody describe the subway sequence in Maniac and and how suspenseful it was, and and the guy was like, I got to get this movie, and and he acquired the film without actually screening it first. Wow. Just based on that screening. Well, just based on word of mouth. Right, right. And filling it with, filling the entire theater with, it was college kids? It was just, it was young kids. Local kids. It was high school, high school kids. And that gave the overall theater just, I would imagine, an incredible energy, which yeah, must have exactly. really sold the film. But yeah, that whole, that entire scenario is just, is, is absolutely brilliant. And then you guys walked away with film deals after the fact. Um, so when you were filming Maniac, obviously the budget didn't allow for anything other than guerrilla filmmaking, it sounds like. You didn't well, have... firstly, there wasn't a budget. It was simply to spend the least amount of money to finish the movie. Right. So that didn't allow for permits, so you had to shoot the film. No, no, we shot, we shot with permits. In New York, they don't charge you for permits. They don't even charge you for the police uh, at that time. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, they don't. They they that was the whole thing. Uh, post French Connection, uh, Mayor Lindsay um, instituted the mayor's office uh, for motion picture and television, and the and the lore was that they didn't charge you for permits. They didn't charge you for police. Okay, got it. But you um, did you have to do much guerrilla filmmaking on Maniac or no? Yes, I mean there were some scenes, like for instance the uh, famous uh, Tom Savini shotgun scene. Right. Uh, we didn't call the police. We, we didn't issue a permit for that day. We shot it on a Saturday night um, next to the uh, Belt Parkway in, in New York City, uh -huh. and um, and we fired a live shotgun. Nice. <laughs> so how did you get Tom Savini involved? So it was. Maniac was released in 1980, so Savini must have been just off the heels of Dawn of the Dead and Friday the 13th. How did well, you get actually, involved? Well, actually, what happened was I, I had seen, I snuck into an advanced screening of Dawn of the Dead mm -hmm. and was blown away by the effects. So when we got ready to do Maniac, I wanted Tom Savini to do the effects. Tom Savini happened to be shooting 
the original Friday the 13th in New Jersey. So um, we made an appointment to see him. We, we uh, Joe Spinell, uh, Andy Garani, and myself, we load into a car, drive to the, uh, to the set of Friday the 13th, meet with Tom Savini. We tell him about our movie. But the real hook for Savini was um, he had just broken up with a girl in, in Pittsburgh and wanted to, he didn't want to go back to Pittsburgh when Friday the 13th wrapped. Hmm. So he said, can you get me an apartment in New York for me to stay so I don't have to go back to Pittsburgh? <laughs> and we said, sure. And we got him an apartment and that's how we got Tom Savini. Oh my God. <laughs> this is a pretty advantageous way to get him. So another thing I'd love to talk about is I grew up in New York. I still live in New York, but I never got to experience the Grindhouse era of New York. And I know that this was your, you grew up in Grindhouse theaters of New York. And from what I understand, you saw Deliverance more than 60 times. And, well, that uh, wasn't at a Grindhouse. That was, that was at a uh, Fort Lee, New Jersey oh. uh, theater, cinema where I was an usher. Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how I got to see it so many times. But um, I did I did spend quite a bit of time on 42nd Street. That really was my home away from home. And that's where I got to see. But you got to understand, 42nd Street was really a smorgasbord. You, yes, you did have grindhouse films there. But you also had a theater that specialized in westerns. Hmm. You had another theater that was an art house theater where I saw Fellini's Satyricon. Um Oh, wow. And, you know, so it really ran the gamut of genres on 42nd Street. Right. They didn't all play horror in uh, Grindhouse movies. It sounds like a dream come true. What were some of your fondest memories of that time period? Oh, God. I mean, <laughs> I did a Travis Bickle date, uh, taking a girl <laughs> to see Fight for, Fight for Your Life on 42nd Street. <laughs> And the audience was so revved up by the movie that, um, I mean, I kind of knew where the movie was headed, but I said, oh, my God, I hope the last reel doesn't break because this audience needs that release. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, that was funny. Um, I uh, seen uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre there. Ooh. I saw that the second day it opened. And I remember the audience going completely crazy during the movie. Mm -hmm. It was bedlam in the theater because it was the very first time, I think, in 42nd Street history where the, where the movie more than delivered on the poster's promise. Huh. So people weren't was ready rare. for it. Right. They weren't ready for a movie that actually delivered on its promise. Right. Because in the past, these exploitation films would have explosions and monsters and all sorts of things on the posters that would never, ever materialize in the movie. Exactly. When you say the audience went crazy during Texas Chainsaw, what was going on? What were people doing? I mean, screaming, I well, would imagine. I remember I had this memory of this kid sitting in front of me, didn't know me from Adam. He uh, uh, turned around. During the scene when the girl is getting, uh, when grandfather is hitting the girl with the hammer right. on the head. Or trying to. And he, and he turns around and he looks at me and goes, I can't believe this movie. I can't believe it. This is insane. This is great. <laughs> God, I wish I could have been there. <laughs> so um, Quentin Tarantino has called you one of his favorite directors. And apparently you almost directed True Romance. Is that right? Yes, that's true. I, I worked on it for a year. Oh, wow. What is yeah. the story behind that? How did that all come together? And Well, it's very simple. I mean, we were do I was doing the film uh, at a budget of two and a half, three million dollars. It was financed. Uh, I was in pre-production, casting, location scouting. Um, and uh, Tony Scott was looking for a writer to punch up uh, Crimson Tide, I believe it was. Right. Um, was sent uh, True Romance as a writing sample and fell in love with the script and basically said, I want to direct this movie. And so uh, it was Goodbye Bill. I was paid. I own a piece of the movie. And, uh, and in comes Tony Scott. Got it. Who was huge at that time as a director. He was. I think at the time he was the highest grossing director in the world. Oh, wow. How much did your version differ from the version that we all know is true romance? 
Well, funny enough, it didn't differ a lot except in stylistically how I would have approached it as as the director. I I really took the approach of it being more of a Don Siegel movie mm. than I did uh, with Tony Scott made it more MTV. Right. And uh, but the script did not change. Uh, in fact, it's funny the the ending of the film, which I. I wrote in my living room uh, because I, the sales agent said the because Clarence originally died in in Quentin's script. Right. Yeah, I read the original script. And, and uh, what happened was um, the sales agent, you know, said we can't sell it. We need him to live. So we wrote uh, Roger Avery and I in my living room a stupid ending uh, <laughs> with them on the beach. And uh, Tony Scott wound up shooting it word for word. Oh, wow. You wrote that ending. Yeah. Yeah. Roger Avery and myself. Yeah. We did it. It really it was never intended to be shot. <laughs> That's so We funny. did it just so the sales agent could, could send out the script. Wow. And that's, that's how the movie ended up ending. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. So you and Sam Raimi were contemporaries and even friends from what I understand. Uh, yes. Yeah, no. Sam is a very, is a very dear friend. I haven't spoken to him in a while, but he's a, he, you know, we, we spent some time together. And you two were both making your movies around the same time. Evil Dead came out in eighty one, whereas Maniac came out in nineteen eighty. Did you what? What did you guys learn from each other? What was that relationship like during that time period? Well, it was interesting because I, I guess, because I was the first guy with Maniac, I became a bit of a mentor. Uh, from the business side, right? Uh, to 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 Sam, because mm-hmm. he would ask me questions in order for you know because he was trying to sell Evil Dead, right? And so, um, but uh, you know that was what I remember, um, you know. Uh, but he was uh, he, he was so obviously an enormously talented guy, very very smart, hell of a nice guy. Yeah, that's. Such a cool idea that just the two of you guys, young filmmakers, learning yeah, it from was each fun. other. I remember when we, the day we shot Maniac Cop, um, he was waiting for the financing for Dark Man. He was in New York. Um, I think he was sleeping at some girl's apartment. He was, you know, and waiting and, you know, biting his nails, waiting for the financing to happen on Dark Man. Right. And suddenly I say, Come on, Sam, we're going to go out and shoot a a movie called Maniac Cop. I don't have a script, <laughs> but you know, I called up Bruce. We're gonna we're, we're gonna go out St. Patrick's Day, and he said, "Can I be in it?" I said, "Sure." And and and, and Larry wrote that mm-hmm. um, that the, the page of script for the uh, news reporter, and uh, and we went out and shot it. It was fun. That's so cool. And what uh, what was it like working with Larry Cohen? Um. I, Larry is a brilliant idea man. There's no doubt about it. He's a very brilliant idea man. So you went, you went to NYU Film School, and uh, I was wondering, in terms of advice for aspiring filmmakers, how much did film school mean to you in terms of your career, and what did you get out well, of it? Well, first, I only went for two semesters. Okay. And I thought it was wonderful as far as networking was concerned. Hmm. Okay. And I was, and I had a really good uh, film school teacher, Haig Manoujian, kind of a legend at, at NYU. Okay. And um, and and he he really, um, I, I I I I there was a lot of positive. What I, but here's the thing: when I went to film school, I had already amassed years of experience working on sets uh, as a production assistant working in the editing room. Uh, you know, I, I was, I, I really walked into film school with a lot of experience. Okay. So it wasn't like I was there to, you know, I didn't really gain much except I got my hands on 16 millimeter equipment and, and, and got to network with people. Right. So last few questions here. Retro- but I don't recommend. I don't recommend. I don't recommend film school in and of itself. Mm-hmm. I think practical experience trumps film school. Right. I really think that if you're an aspiring filmmaker, you got to start young, 
if you're not making your first feature in your early 20s, you're, you're, too, you're getting too old uh-huh. to do it. I, I think, you know, if you're, not, if you're not on track by the time you're 30 years old, give up. Find another profession. Got it. So I hate to be so blunt, but it's true. <laughs> so um, with that in mind, what, it, retrospectively, knowing what you know about Hollywood, given the career that you've had, what advice would you have given to your 25-year-old self when you were making Maniac? Looking back, yeah, I, and this is personal for me, I had uh, basically low self-esteem because I, um, I was always looked upon. I was a high school dropout. Uh, I was never good at school. Uh, filmmaking, I was I, I, in my family and, and uh, was looked upon as a joke. And, uh, that I, you know, that it wasn't a real bit, a real profession. Right. And so, uh, and, and because I also had started in adult films, I always felt I was an underdog. Right. Um, so I, I, I didn't really appreciate that I had made a pretty decent movie when I made Maniac. I always believed the bad reviews and, and questioned the good reviews. Hmm. <laughs> And at the time I made Maniac, there were many, many bad reviews. They both kind of turned around right. in the last couple of decades. But back when I made the movie, it was it was, you know, it was uni, uni, uh, it, it was unanimously dismissed by the mainstream critics and and stuff. So it was something I I felt as though um, I don't know I I I, I always kind of uh, moved forward. But always feeling like I wasn't good enough for, you know, to go into the mainstream, to go. I never got an agent, as an example. Hmm. I never got a Hollywood agent. I just always thought of myself as somebody who, and I still to this, to, to you know, when doing Blue Underground is sort of a way that I don't have to deal with, um, you know, uh, uh, with, you know, with certain things. I'm, I'm always operating. I always feel I operated best when I was on my own. Right. I never felt good at, at being part of something. I always felt better when I was doing it on my own, um, making decisions on my own. Mm -hmm. Instead of having I to deal with the studio system? Yeah, dealing with producers. Got him. When I was dealing with producers later on, it was, it was difficult. It was challenging for me. Yeah. And I wasn't good at it. You know, when I made Maniac Cop, I mean, Jim Glickenhouse, basically, we agreed on a budget, and um, I went out and made the movie, and they saw it when it was finished. Simple Nobody was there. I signed the checkbook, you know? Yeah. I signed the checks. I did everything, you know? And and it, it was easy to do. Uh, Maniac Cop 2, the same way. It was my movie. Uh, for better or worse, I, I did everything. Yeah. And uh, it was and it's easier for me to do that. It's harder when I have to deal with the politics. Right. Yeah, it's ex it's exhausting. So you um I mean obviously we talked about this briefly, but you started directing adult movies. What are some yes. of the biggest parallels between porn directing and directing exploitation horror? From a technical standpoint back then, it was it was identical. Um, because porn films were b being shot on 35 millimeter and 16 millimeter for theatrical release. So the process from a technical standpoint was exactly the same. Um, mm. And so there really wasn't that big a difference as far as, uh, um, you know, the, the, the making of the films really weren't that different. Yeah. You know, obviously, there's different values that that are important in them, but it really wasn't at that time much different. In fact, the very first adult film that I worked on as a production assistant, the crew had just come off of working on a movie that became Superfly. Oh my god, <laughs> that's really cool. Yeah, they were complaining about this movie they were they had just come off of. They were shooting in Harlem and. 
how low budget it was and and how they were shooting in you know with real pushers and real drugs Whoa. And, and then uh, and then I later when Superfly came out, I connected the dots that that was the movie that they were <laughs> that they had worked on. It. I don't think it, I don't know if it was called Superfly when they were shooting it. Right? Yeah, because these films they would change titles left, right, and center. That's so cool, yeah. though. <laughs> so I don't yeah. I uh, I don't like asking people what their favorite scary movie is, but I have different variations on that question. So for you, I'm wondering, what's your favorite Bava? What's your favorite Argento? And what's your favorite Fulci? Okay. Well, I, I'd like to go back to your first um, question that you aborted. Okay. Because I really find, like, for instance, my favorite creepy movie that, that always sends a chill is Carnival of Souls. Interesting. That's the movie for me that has, that really for me is kind of scary. Hmm. It really is scary to me. I mean, Chainsaw Massacre is visceral. Yeah. Um, same with the uh, the George Romero films, mm-hmm. but answering your question, um, uh, the my favorite Mario Bava film is Blood and Black Lace. Mine too. Uh, my my favorite Argento is Deep Red, and and second, close second, is Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Mm-hmm. And um, my favorite uh, Fulci, I would say, is. Um, I would say is probably zombie with city of the living dead. It's a close second. Got it. Very cool. So what are you working on nowadays? Other than um, everything. I'm you're actually doing with working Under- on New York Ripper. I'm doing a 4k of New York Ripper. Oh, as we nice. Speak. Very cool. Yeah. And also we're going to start on two evil eyes 4k uh, in January. Really, really cool. So for yeah. people who are just, learning about Blue Underground, what are some of the lesser-known kind of hidden gems that you recommend people check out? I mean, obviously, you have a catalog of over 100 movies, but are there three or four that are just very under-recognized that you think people should just definitely check out? Um, yes. Uh, from from an, a, thr- a thriller, an action thriller, I love La Scorta. Okay, Ricky cool. Trignazzi's La Scorta. Mm-hmm. Love the movie. Uh, and then uh, I think uh, a fun uh, hidden gem would be Fight for Your Life. Uh, that's a really good one. I haven't seen that one. I'm giving, it, I'm giving you the more obscure ones that I think are really ones not to be missed. Okay, great. Yeah, that's exactly what we're looking for. Yeah, and uh, I think um, I, I, uh, Death Dream is a movie I think is just fantastic. I've been meaning to see that. That's kind of about PTSD, isn't it? Well, it's not about PTSD. It's it's a it's a it's a really creepy movie. Okay. I don't want to tell you much more. Okay, great. But I I could tell you this. It it was my inspiration when I did Uncle Sam. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. I yeah. thought a lot about Death Dream. And that's I on think that, that by the way, Death Dream is a superior movie. But uh, it, w- it was something that was in my mind. Okay, interesting. All right, yeah, let's go to the top of my list. So last question. When it comes to filmmaking and directing, there's a lot of resources out there. There's a lot of books. There's a lot of courses. There's a lot of self-appointed experts. A lot of it is bullshit, though. Were, for you, were there any resources or classes or books that you would consider valuable for filmmakers that helped you in some way? There were many. Uh, the one that sprung to mind, as you're asking the question, Sidney Lamette's book on directing Mm. is amazing. Okay. It's really an important book for filmmakers too. You see, most filmmakers can do the technical stuff Mm -hmm. one way or another. They can, they, they can make a film happen technically, but it's guys like Sidney Lamette that take it to the next level. It, and, and his, and his book really gives you insight into a real director. Uh, one of the other books that was important to me was Frank Capra's book. He did an autobiographical book, but it, it was about filmmaking. It, and also, is, it had history of him. Right. But the filmmaking part really stuck to me. And I'll tell you one thing that I got out of the Frank Capra book that I highly recommend to people. Most people, when they're editing their movies... Don't take a don't take a beat to take that movie and project it on a big screen. Hmm. 
before they lock it. And what the the point of Frank Capra's book is the pacing differs from when you're editing on a um, on a editorial system, whether it's a you know an Avid or or uh, Final Cut Pro, or back in those days a, Mo- a Moviola or a Steambeck. Um, it, 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 it differs. So one of the things I learned, which I followed uh, from the Capra book, was during the editorial process, periodically taking the film and, and screening it on a big screen. Hmm. And you'll see things that you wind, you wind up fixing. Okay. No, that it's... you don't see when you're editing it. Right. Right, because, I mean, what can you really see on an Avid compared to a big screen? No, that's... But it's mostly in, in the form of pacing. Interesting. Because the key edit- editorial is all about pacing. Right, right. Just the beat by beat of the of the movie yeah. itself. No, it's fast. And, and you get the rhythm when you put it up on a big screen. Also, there have been others. I remember when I was a kid, before I ever worked on any films, I used to go to the library and I would sit there and, and read books on movie making. And uh, another thing um, that's, that I recommend is I've been a reader of American cinematography since the late 60s. Hmm. I've, I've been a subscriber, a constant, nonstop subscriber. And when you read American cinematography, it's not reading just one article. It's the cumulative. It's, it's reading them. You really get, you get insight into, more insight into, the, into filmmaking hmm. by reading those articles. Okay. And it just gradually all kind of stays in your mind and it all exactly. just reading it's, it over long periods of time. It should be a monthly exercise to spend a few hours each month devouring the American Cinematographer magazine. Okay, well, I'm going to get my subscription right now. <laughs> Bill, this is a real privilege. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Oh, it, it's mine too. I, I, I love it. I can't wait to, um, you know... It, I recommend, you know, to your listeners, you know, go out, look at, look at the new zombie Blu-ray and yes. also the new Maniac Blu-ray. Yeah, definitely. I think they'll get a kick out of them. No, for sure. Yeah, I, I, I was looking at the zombie 4K minutes ago, and it's, it looks amazing. It takes that entire, even if you own the movie, it takes it to an entirely new degree. So, yeah, congratulations on that. Thank you, Nick. Cool. Bill, thanks again. All right. So if you guys enjoyed listening to Bill Lustig, I highly recommend hearing Mick Garris's interview with him on his podcast, Postmortem. In fact, I listened to it right before recording this one to make sure that we wouldn't tread over similar ground because I really wanted this conversation to be complimentary to Mick's. So go check out the Postmortem episode with Bill. I highly recommend it. Now, let's get down to the three key learnings from Bill Lustig. Number one, get the train moving. When pitching a movie, it's critical to remember that there are thousands of other people with scripts and ideas just as good, if not better, than yours. What separates those who get funding versus those who don't is momentum and tangibility. If all you have is a script or an idea for a movie, in the eyes of investors, you pretty much got nothing. For producers to be interested, they need to know you're capable of bringing this vision to life and seeing it through to completion, which is why they look for signs that the project is moving forward. The metaphor of getting the train out of the station that Bill mentions is a really good one, because to wait for everything to be perfect and for producers to jump on board before you go into production is a fool's errand, because the sheer act of going into production indicates to producers that the movie is real and that you're a worthwhile investment because you can make things happen. Movement is critical in this regard, and frequently directors will pitch producers who say no at first, but jump back on board when the movie is further in development. So the other part of this is that no might not always mean no. It could mean not now. Now, I got to tango with one piece of advice that Bill gave that I do not agree with, and that is that if you are not making movies by the age of 30, you should give up. Let's examine some case studies. Wes Craven was 34 when he made Last House on the Left. Ridley Scott was 40 when he made his first major film, The Duelists, and then he went on to make Alien. Mick Garris was 33 when he first began screenwriting and didn't get to direct until he was 37 with Critters 2. 
Terry Gilliam was 35 when he made his first feature. Alejandro Gonzalez Inarritu was 37 when he did Amores Perros. Ang Lee was 38 when he did his, his first film. Sam Mendes was 34 when he made American Beauty. And the list goes on and on. It's never too late. Finally, let's get back to key insights from Bill. This is one of my favorite lessons, and that is to never underestimate the power of showmanship. So when Bill was screening Maniac at the Cannes Film Festival, one of his reps insisted that it be shown at the smallest theater available. This seems entirely contrarian, but the purpose of the small screen was to ensure that the movie would sell out and that there would be lines around the block, creating a visual spectacle and therefore a demand for the movie. This gets attention at a film auction circus like the Cannes Film Festival, where it's imperative that you make some sort of splash to be noticed. Furthermore, he gave most of the tickets away to local high school and college kids to boost the youthful energy of the audience so that producers and investors in the theater would experience their energetic reactions to the film, which would make them way more interested in acquiring the movie itself. These are brilliant strategies and really underscore the importance of the atmosphere that you must create around your film. What it taught me was that directing does not stop when the movie is done and you yell, that's a wrap. You have to be a director on and off set and constantly create a spectacle. As a result of all of this, Bill and his team walked out with a major acquisition deal for Maniac, which set him up for a successful career in filmmaking. Anyway, guys, that's all we have for today. Big thanks to Bill Lustig and the team at MVD for setting up this interview. Go to www.blue-underground.com and get your 4K copies of Zombie and Maniac on Blu-ray. You will be glad that you did. If you dug this episode, it'd mean the world to me if you could share it with your friends and family on social media. Feel free to follow the show on the Instagrams at I'm Nick Taylor, that's I-M Nick Taylor, or on Twitter with the same handle. Thanks for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. We scare because we care.